So tonight we come to the 10th plague and here's the screens that we've been using uh, just by way of reminder. So the uh, section we're going to look at tonight is chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 13, verse 16. So if you have a Bible available, there's a few things that I want to point out in this section. This section talks all about the ninth plague and I mean the 10th plague rather and um, and not the departure itself. So next week we'll look at the actual departure from Egypt uh, and and that journey that um, the people take. So I'm going to I'm going to apologize um, up front here. This is going to be confusing a little bit tonight because of the way this text is written. So you got to stick with me a little bit on this because what is happening here in this section is a merging of two different traditions that have been compiled together. So just hang with me and as we move through it, I think it'll make sense, but um, it might take a little bit of time to get there. So let's uh, move ahead. We are still in this part one of chapters one through 15 and we'll finish that section next week when we uh, see their departure out of Egypt. So tonight, this 10th plague is the final plague that is recorded in Exodus. And it speaks of the death of the firstborn. And it is what finally gets Pharaoh to release the people. And it is also the commemoration of an annual festival that is still celebrated to this day. And that is the yearly Passover Seder is established out of this text. The Passover meal is meant to be a lasting reminder of this 10th plague and ultimately the deliverance out of Egypt. But this section here has a lot of moving parts to it. And when we read it in English, we might not notice that there are some differences. And that's what I want to point out to you tonight is some of the differences that we see in this section that lends itself to two different traditions that have been combined into one document here. So in Exodus 12, 12, we saw that one of the purposes of all these plagues is a, an assault against the Egyptian gods. What changes in the 10th plague is it doesn't seem to be as much directed toward an Egyptian god as much as the final plague that establishes this yearly memorial of Passover. You'll see what I mean here in a few moments. So Israel is going to prepare for a coming deliverance or redemption out of the land of slavery with a sacrificial banquet, because there are two things that are combined in this text, not only Passover, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread as well is combined in this section. So this banquet becomes kind of a prototype of the post-biblical uh, celebration of Passover in the Seder. And if you've had an opportunity to sit through a Seder, all the components of the Seder is to reflect back on this section of Exodus. 
Does that make sense to everybody so far? So when you look at this section, I'll say there are three hot topics in this section of Exodus. The first one is the 10th plague, which is an annual reminder of God's act of deliverance. The second main topic is the departure from Egypt commences not just the Passover, but also the festival of unleavened bread, where for a week, uh, the, the Jewish people are not to eat bread that has yeast in it. So this uh, feast of unleavened bread is a part of the story because the food that they were going to take along with them, the Egyptians are pushing them out the door uh, pretty quickly with this 10th plague, and they don't have the time to allow uh, the yeast in the bread uh, to do its work. And so they take what they have with them, and uh, this bread is unleavened. And uh, without the yeast in it, um, this becomes another memorial that there was a time that the people didn't have adequate time to prepare for their departure as far as food goes. They had to take what they had when they left. So the other third component of this section is God is going to command the consecration of the firstborn of every womb. And by every womb, I don't mean just humans, but the wombs of animals as well. So there's a lot of moving parts, and these three topics are all working at the same time. So we might just think of the 10th plague as that which is pushing the Israelites out the door, and they get uh, on a journey toward what will eventually become their homeland. But there's more that's going on here. So let's hang tight and Here's where the confusion is going to come in with this, um, this chart. So hang with me for a second. And we have said on occasion that throughout the whole Torah, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there are multiple influences and so scholars came up with a thing called the JEPD theory, uh, J being the Yahweh tradition, E being the Elohim tradition, P being the priestly um, uh, part of it, and uh, the tradition finally of D representing Deuteronomy. So Yahweh, Elohim, the priestly, and the Deuteronomy traditions are all seen in the Torah. In this section, it appears as though that the J tradition and the P tradition are being combined. So if you look at the text, the flow of the text, it, the way it reads in English is this. The 10th plague is announced in chapter 11. Then there are regulations that are given for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in chapter 12 through verse 20. But then there is a second set of regulations here that's given for the Passover, but not the Feast of Unleavened Bread in chapter 21, verse 28. Then um, there's a brief account of the 10th plague, and you'll see how short it is here. Considering the length of the 
narrative in the first nine plagues, this is kind of unusual that such short information is given about the 10th plague itself. Then it tells us that the people depart to a place called Succoth in chapter 12, verse 33 through 42. And then there is a third set of regulations given regarding the Passover and a second set of regulations for the Feast of Unleavened Bread in chapter 13. And these are sandwiched uh, between the consecration of the firstborn in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, and 11 through 16. So when scholars read this section, they go, this doesn't make a lot of logical sense here. Why does this text look the way it does? So what they have done is they have taken it and they have uh, basically noticed that there are two traditions going on at the same time that have been woven together. So the J tradition or the Yahweh tradition is that which announces the 10th plague. Then what we find taking place is after chapter 11, you are given regulations for the Passover in uh, verses one through 13 and the regulations for unleavened bread uh, in verses 14 through 20. But then there is a second uh, set of regulations for the Passover in verses 21 through 28. Now what scholars think is happening here is if you read verses one through 10 of chapter 11 and jump to chapter 12, verse 21 through 28, it flows wonderfully. But what happens is these two paragraphs here are then inserted, which makes it kind of like a speed bump. It, it, it slows you down, and then you, it, you come back to a second uh, set of regulations for the Passover. Then the 10th plague is announced, uh, or actually recorded in verses 29 through 32, and then they depart. What happens next, though, is what's fascinating is in verse 43 of chapter 12, there is another set of regulations for the Passover. So this is the third time. Why is it repeated three times? And then following that in chapter 13, you have a second set of regulations for uh, uh, unleavened bread. And then you have the text that is... Uh, regarding the consecration of the firstborn. So if you disregard the red letters here, and you were to do this, and you can do this on your own, if you read just the black lettering under tradition one, it flows wonderfully. You go from one to 10, uh, chapter 11, verses one to 10, then to 12, 29 through 32, uh, and then to 33 through 42, and then to chapter 13. And that's the way it, it flows the nicest. But these red letter, uh, or at least that's the color I chose when I made the chart, um, interrupt this. So that's a very confusing structure. And what's fascinating about it is they are not in agreement. So there are changes in between these different paragraphs that are fairly noticeable 
but scholars really say these jump out. And it's speaking about an earlier tradition and a later tradition. So as we know, over the course of time, even the regulations that have been given to Moses are changed. Uh, later in the Old Testament, uh, we find that the regulations are modified on occasion, and sometimes they're combined into one ordinance. And that's what will happen with the Passover and unleavened bread. In some texts, they are two different festivals. In some texts, they appear combined as one. So scholars notice these things and they're going, oh, we know what's going on here. These are two different traditions that have been shuffled together like a deck of cards. And as long as you understand that there's two different sources that are at work here, then the, the differences don't bother us all that much because they're modified over a course of time. Does that make sense to everybody? Or can I clarify, do you have a question? So I understand this is confusing and it's a deep dive uh, in trying to understand um, what is often studied in what's called textual criticism. What are the sources? Why are they combined the way are they, they are combined? And why are there differences between them? Any thoughts? How would you read them? What's that? What, what order would you read those in? Well, your best, um, your best to, in English, you can read it just from top to bottom. But as no, I mentioned- No, I mean the, the highlighted ones. <clears throat> Here's what I would do. Read the black letters in order, okay? Okay. Don't ignore the red ones. Then okay. go back and read the red letters in order. Okay. They okay. will flow. Okay, so, that makes sense. Um, have you any of you run across a resource called the Chronological Bible? Are you familiar yeah. with that? Okay. So sometimes what that, uh, that particular publication tries to do, and I, I can't tell you what they do with this section because I haven't looked at it, but they try to pull out the different chapters and place them where they, they actually occur chronologically. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, not all so, of them do that though. I have uh -huh. a hard copy mm -hmm. that does exactly what you described, but mm -hmm. that was, I think, 1984. Okay. And I cannot find a digital copy that's like that one. Oh, I, I, yeah, I can't tell you. I never run across the digital uh, chronological. I just remember that they published it and what they do is, in the one that you're talking about yeah. is they'll take the historical books and then they'll take, let's say, for example, the Psalms or the prophets and right. they'll insert them into where that occurs chronologically. But no, right. I have not. I have not run across that in a digital format. I don't know if no, that exists the, or not. Well, they call them chronological, but they don't do that. In the hard copy I have, the even the Gospels are all uh -huh. meshed together. Yeah, yeah. Well, that 
you know, I guess if if you're trying to logically follow one point to another in a kind of a a history way, that's fine. But what that does do is it takes away the emphasis of what each individual book mm -hmm. is trying to do. So like when you when you take the Gospels and J. Dwight Pentecost, who was a professor of mine down at Dallas Seminary, um, did a harmony of the Gospels. And I don't know if you've ever seen that. I think it's put out by Zondervan. It's called A Harmony of the Gospels. And he takes all the Gospels and he shuffles them together so that this is probably what happened chronologically mm -hmm. in the life of Christ. Mm -hmm. The problem is it kind of neuters the individual emphasis of the individual gospel writers on what they're trying to emphasize. So if you took that as kind of the only way to read about the life of Jesus, you would miss the individual emphases that the gospel writers are doing by choosing some stories and ignoring other uh, stories, if, if that makes sense. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you know, I think that's, I think that's attractive to those of us who live in the West because we're so kind of linear in the way we think <laughs> that we like everything to kind of be in chronological order, A to B, B to C type thing. But much of the Bible doesn't follow that format at all. And here's a good example of it. Here's two traditions that come from very different timelines that have been by later redactors and revisionists merged together into one source. So it shouldn't bother us. It's just what they did. Uh, and you just have to kind of sit up and take notice that these things don't sound the same because they come from a different time. Does that, that make sense? Okay, so I'll show you what I mean. So here we go. So the big question is here, why don't they agree in their details, these two different traditions? So theoretically, and this is the viewpoint of so many evangelical churches in particular, is that the entire Pentateuch, or Torah, was written by Moses, one author. Well, theoretically, I guess that could work, but when you notice these differences here, um, it wouldn't make sense if it was a single author why he would double back three times within a couple of chapters. Now, they're not chapters in the original scrolls. That's an that's a modern device, so we can find where we want to go to in the Bible. But in the original school, scrolls, why would he talk about the Passover, move on to a different topic, come back to the Passover again, move on to a different topic, come back to it a third time? I guess repetition is a manner of learning, but it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So these disagreements or the patterns that are in this section seem to suggest that it wasn't written by one individual. 
that there is multiple authors that have contributed to these different traditions. And I, you'll see right here, I put, you almost need a slide rule and a decoder ring to kind of figure this out because of the different, and it doesn't really matter to the average Bible reader, but scholars note it and they, many dedicate their life to try to figure this out, how, how these things came together and that type of thing. So the, the easy answer here is they don't agree because they're not all written by the same person. Now I'll show you the significant differences uh, here in the next couple of slides, okay? So, so what's, uh, what's first to be noted is the name of the month that is used here. So when you come to um, chapter 12, um, you'll notice here, it begins uh, saying, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So now this is going to establish the Jewish calendar. Uh, so this will become their Rosh Hashanah, New Year. Um, and it says here, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb uh, for his family, one for each household. So now he begins to talk about what's going to happen here. Now, what we're told is later in the uh, book of Exodus, chapter 23 and chapter 34, that this the name of this month is called Aviv. So this name, or in English, Abib, but uh, Abi is like a, a V in Hebrew. Aviv uh, is an old name for this month. Many of us might be more familiar with the current Hebrew calendar, the first month being Nisan, N-I-S-A-N. That is a, a name that is borrowed from the Babylonian exile. So, Later, this name Nisan, where which appears in the book of Esther and the book of Nehemiah, this same month has two different names. So what scholars suggest is the name that is used in Exodus is using an, an older tradition because uh, the name Nisan um, is a later post-exilic name of the month. So what they try to say is tradition one tends to use older language than tradition two. That's their first observation. Then there's some differences between tradition one and tradition two. So <clears throat> we're going to read uh, here in chapter 12. If you come to tradition one, uh, first beginning in verse 21. So let's read that first. And then we're going to go over to tradition two and read a section. And I want you to notice if, if you notice any differences here. So uh, first one is chapter 12, verse 21. Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once, select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop 
dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Okay. So tradition number one talks about this selection of a Passover lamb. Of course, we know kind of the procedure of them using the blood and putting it over the door frame. What's interesting is as the Lord goes through the lamb, there is this destroyer that is mentioned, this destroyer that is going to kill the firstborn. Okay, now let's go over to tradition number two, which can be reflected here in verses one through 13 of chapter 12. So it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share with uh, one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be uh, year-old males without defect, and you may take from them, or take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, did you notice any differences between those two paragraphs? Did any? Yeah, there's a lot of detail, isn't there, in, in, in what they're calling tradition number two versus uh, the short description in tradition uh, uh, one. Any other things that you notice here? So notice uh, here, it mentions, uh, as you see here, tradition two focuses on when Passover is to be celebrated in verse five, while tradition number one uh, tends to focus on uh, instructing children in the Passover meaning. So I didn't, uh, if you come on down to verse uh, 24 through 27, uh, it says here, <clears throat> verse 26, when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them 
It is the Lord's sacrifice to, uh, to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spare our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So number one is about the details of how to get it right, okay? So that's what you mentioned, Esty, that it's longer, okay? There's more detail on how much of, of the animal is to be sacrificed, uh, how it is to be provided for people who don't have an animal of their own. Um, the second one uh, in the chapter uh, is talking about uh, uh, instructing the children uh, on what the meaning of it is. So one is methodology and one is meaning is kind of a different emphasis there. Then secondly, tradition number two requires that a sacrificial lamb uh, could also be a goat. Did you notice that? It's not just a sheep. It can also be a goat. Uh, it needs to be without blemish. It needs to be a year old. Um, and it says here that it's specified in verse six uh, how it is to be prepared. Um, it tells us um, it's to be roasted. And uh, Oh, that's verse eight. I'm sorry. Uh, that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire. So there's detail even on how to prepare it. Tradition number one uh, seems to instruct the people to select a lamb, slaughter it, and there's no instructions given here on how to prepare the lamb at all. So one is talking about roasting. The other one is not giving you any detail on how to prepare it. Simply make sure the blood is over the doorpost so that it, the destroyer passes over. Now, right there is, is a significant difference. If you go back to chapter 11, go back to chapter 11, verse 4. <clears throat> it says, so Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. God's speaking here. So God is going through Egypt to destroy the firstborn in chapter 11, but it's described as the destroyer, or sometimes it's called the angel of death that goes through Egypt in chapter 12. Interesting. So there, there's these slight differences that we, we maybe don't even notice. Have you ever noticed that? You know, if you read through it, those are easy things to kind of jump over and not and not recognize. But scholars note these things. They notice these things. And as they do so, one of the things um, that they recognize is the instruction that is given here sometimes is in disagreement with the way it's described other places. So let's go to the next slide here. So according to chapter 12 of Exodus, the Passover lamb is to be roasted over fire, not eating raw or boiled meat. Um, it's to be celebrated in each household. But keep your thumb here and go over to Deuteronomy chapter 16. So again, if this, if the Torah or the Pentateuch is all written by Moses, 
Why are these significant differences here? In chapter 16, if you come down to verse uh, six or verse five, it says here, you must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord your God gives you, except in the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. So you're not to do it at home anymore, all right? That's, they, that's where they're doing it in, in Exodus 12. Now what has changed is after they've left, they're on the move, but Numbers tells us that they wander in the wilderness, okay, for almost 40 years. The second giving of the law, that's what Deuteronomy means, the second giving of the law, is talking about a special place that they are to sacrifice it says here, there you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening when the sun goes down on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. Then in the morning, return to your tents. For six days, eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, hold an assembly to the Lord your God and do no work. Now, it's very clear in Exodus that they're uh, not to boil um, the lamb. They're to roast it. Now, verse 7 of Deuteronomy 16 says, roast it and eat it. Um, the NIV translators are not being quite honest with you there. So in, in Hebrew and in the Jewish study Bible, the word there is cook it. It's not roasted, implying that they have an option. They can roast it or they can boil it. The NIV is trying to harmonize because the NIV is built on a tradition uh, by the translators that Moses is the same author, is the author of all these books. So it could mean roast, but it could also mean boil. So, but rather than using the word cook it, they use roasted to harmonize it, okay? So that's why a good study Bible is essential. It, it, it'll, it'll point some of these things out that you just don't notice. So notice here, it says, according to Exodus 12 and 13, as well as Leviticus 23 and Numbers 9, Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread are separate celebrations. But in Deuteronomy here, chapter 16, as well as in 2 Chronicles 30, it's combined as one celebration. So all I'm trying to say is there's a time difference that's taking place. So it makes sense. If you're having the Passover and you're celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread and it's at the same time, why are you keeping it separate? It's you're, you're just combining it into one celebration. And that's what appears in later texts, such as Deuteronomy and Second Chronicles. So this isn't to keep you up at night. All this is to say is there are multiple voices that, is, that are speaking into the text. And to recognize that is a part of what is important if we are going to read the Bible well. Um, hearing those multiple voices and the contributions they make 
then leads to interesting discussions as to why certain things were changed. Here it says in Deuteronomy, you're not going to do this at your home anymore. Do it in the town the Lord your God gives you. That's Jerusalem. In other words, when eventually when they get to the time of David, where Jerusalem will become such a part of their history, that becomes the place you travel to in these annual celebrations. Does that make sense? If it doesn't make sense, um, it's only because it's very complicated, and that's okay. Yeah, I just want you to be aware that the Bible's not an easy text. It's a very difficult text to understand correctly. And if you're frustrated with it, you, you're a part of a big club, really. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. Any thoughts there? Okay, so now we actually come to remember the 10th plague. So in the text, it talks a little bit uh, about the 10th plague being kind of the, the knockout punch that um, tells the people uh, that God is delivering them and they are uh, to uh, depart from Egypt. If you come back to chapter 12 of Exodus and you look down on in verse 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. That's, that's kind of the thesis that we used last week when we were talking about the different plagues. It then says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Okay, from our study last week, we know that the Israelites were exempt from some of the plagues. Do you remember that? That it only touched the Egyptians and it didn't touch the Israelites. Why the distinction then, but not now? You understand what I'm saying? Why couldn't this have been one where God just passed over every Israelite? It might be because what's going to come in the next slide or two is this idea of the firstborn is very significant. We'll get to that in just a second. So what we're, we see is that in preparation for the plague, the Israelites are to ask their Egyptian uh, neighbors for objects of silver and gold. Take a look at verse two. Uh, here, here it says in chapter, uh, actually, 11, not 12, tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. This is going to be the parts of the material that will enable them to build the tabernacle later. Um, it will turn a little bit south uh, in the book of Exodus when they take a lot of this silver and gold that they take with them out of Egypt. And they make a small, um, a small golden calf that they're going to worship when Moses up is receiving the law up in Mount on Mount Sinai. So 
in chapter 11, uh, what we find is that uh, the people are, are pushing them out the door, basically, because of all these plagues. In contrast to Pharaoh, who still is hardening his heart. So that's kind of a setup for chapter 12. And then in chapter 12 itself, you finally come to this 10th plague and it's anticlimactic. Come down to verse 29 in chapter 12. And it says, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Um, the buildup to this is something that is kind of just recorded quickly. It's just kind of, okay, boom. Uh, God goes through, kills the firstborn. Yes, there's wailing, it, it, but there's no narrative focus here on what this actually does to the Egyptian economy or to the empire or anything like that. Um, you know, they lost their workforce and, you know, there should be a lot of details as to the punishment that that brings upon this empire, but there's not. Maybe because that's not the purpose of this section. The purpose isn't to detail uh, for us all the intricacies of that night on the Passover, but there's more of an emphasis on the memorial of it, to remember it. And so here, what we find in the emphasis is a step-by-step -step recounting of how they're to prepare for it, not a step-by-step -step recounting of that night on which it happened, which I find fascinating. If you're told to remember something year to year to year, wouldn't you want more detail to the story than what is given here? So possibly what's happening here is the main part of this section is, and this reflects a later date, is how the Passover came to be and how they are to celebrate the Passover on a yearly basis. So it's a part of their liturgy is what I'm trying to say. It's a part of their rhythm and it's a part of their yearly calendar. Does that make any sense to you at all? Mm -hmm. Can I ask kind of a side question here? Yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> this, it just struck me, if all the firstborn were supposed to be killed, how'd Pharaoh survive? Assuming the kingdom... Went down. That's a that is a very good observation. That's a great observation, because the succession of the pharaohs, if it's anything like the kings, is right. the firstborn becomes the next in line. Yeah, how did he survive? I always um, heard that his older brother got killed in the battle. Yeah, <laughs> he was the spare. I mean, that's a that's a possible. 
Yeah. Well, that's and, Aaron and that's there. and that's what Jewish midrash would do. So rabbis would wrestle with these type of things. Well, then maybe he had an older brother that was killed, and he's not the firstborn. You know, they, they you come try to come up with these um, suggestions or conclusions, and you know, none of us have have the ability to know. Mm -hmm. um, so. It's it's one of those things that is an interesting, interesting observation. It goes, yeah, why? Why is that the case? Well, it's, I was confused. I didn't realize it could be everybody of any age. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know if you could hear SD or no. not. But she said, "What like when Herod had the uh, the children slaughtered during the time of Jesus? You it you you're thinking of little kids, and you tend to transpose that onto uh, this text at times as well. That these are all children that are being slaughtered, but these could be individuals of any age. It's not." Yeah. It's not just children. Yeah. So, yeah, that's another good observation. But I think, you know, if you remember. Go ahead. What? If you remember in the movie, I do I do think, didn't one of the, remember they were standing there and didn't one of the adults fall over dead? And, and didn't somebody say he was first born? No. Yeah. I don't know. I can't I tell don't you. Remember that, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm going to have to get some <laughs> some tape. I, I'm serious. No, I'll, I'll, no, I'll I, don't I don't know. I don't know. Last week I told you the last week I told you the hair was burning. <laughs> I sent you the video. Yeah, yeah, and you did, and you showed me, <laughs> and you remember I said, oh, "Goodness gracious, great balls of fire!" Right. <laughs> <All> <laughs> But I don't know. I mean, I don't remember it out of the movie, but it does seem it does seem to be a rational uh, conclusion, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And because the text will also say uh, that it's taking the firstborn, not just of human beings, but animals as mm -hmm. well. So it's you know, it's there's the slaying of humans and animals and um so when you look at it you kind of go oh my goodness gracious the amount of death that took place on every age level is astounding really a lot of cultures talk about uh, um firstborn in placing a lot of emphasis on who the firstborn is and mm -hmm. having a firstborn son firstborn son and here the firstborns are taken out of the picture. Mm -hmm. Is there any significance of why? Because even now, you know, there's emphasis on firstborn. Yeah, I, and I, I think that leads right into our next slide. So that's a good, good observation here. So uh, this has something to do with the Passover observance. That seems to be the primary... Um, purpose of this section. But there is a secondary thing as well. And as Esty just said about the firstborn, it seems as though what's taking 
uh, place here is that the firstborn belongs to God. So this makes some sense as well of, of Abraham offering up Isaac back in Genesis. So the firstborn, uh, firstborn belongs to God. So here in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23 and 27, what we see taking place is only the firstborn are affected and this sacrifice of a lamb or in part of the text, a goat, uh, there is this protection. And the 10th plague seems to be a declaration by God that the firstborn belongs to me. So even in the whole uh, sacrificial rituals in the Old Testament, um, the first fruits, uh, you know, grain offerings, stuff like that, you give to God your first fruits, you give to God your best. And um, here what we find is that the firstborn seems to be saying that there is, God has this right upon the first that is born, and we are to give it back. And that's, you know, that that shows up in various places in the Old Testament. Um, you, you, you know, you remember when Samuel was given back to God. Um, and, you know, there's this specialized mark of identity upon the firstborn, and there is a double portion of inheritance to the firstborn. So what's taking place here is quite interesting in the sense that what belongs to God belongs to God. And um, it seems as though... Uh, what God is going to do in this particular um, plague is show his protective hand upon what belongs to him. So it's interesting to me that you see right here in the middle of the screen, the blood of a sacrificed lamb plays some sort of necessary protective role in keeping the Lord from killing the firstborn. But if the 10th plague is God's payback for Pharaoh's treachery, why would the Israelite firstborn ever be in danger to begin with? So it seems as though the firstborn is important here, and God is using the firstborn to show his protective nature. So the same word that is used for Passover, Passah, is also used in Isaiah 31. I want you to just listen to this. Isaiah 31, verse 5. There is this cross-reference that shows what God is doing in this whole endeavor. So in verse 5 of Isaiah 31, it says, Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem he will shield it and deliver it, and he will pass over it and will rescue it. It seems as though God wants to project himself 
as the protector of his people. And the reason that he includes the firstborn of Israel is it's his chance to show his protective nature over, um, over the Israelites' firstborn. Now, what they need to do is participate in this a little bit by putting the blood over the doorpost. But I, there are some ancient beliefs about the firstborn here that is quite interesting. Um, here we see the Israelites believe that God requires the firstborn of their livestock and flocks, as well as the first fruit of the land. However, in Exodus 13, 13, I want you to notice something. So now in this chapter, there is a focus on the consecration of the firstborn. So now the 10th plague is kind of in, in the rear view mirror. And it says here in verse one, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The firstborn offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me. What belongs to God belongs to God, whether man or animal. Isn't that interesting? Now, you want to see something fascinating. So Moses will talk about the commemoration of this day. And, um, and then you come down to verse 13. In verse 13, it says here, well, let's look at verse 12. Uh, it says it again, all the firstborn males of even your livestock belong to the Lord. Verse 13, redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now, let's, let's think this through just for a quick second. So if the firstborn belongs to God, but the, the ass or the donkey is exempt, but yet is a firstborn, you have to take another sheep and sacrifice it as a substitute for that firstborn donkey. <laughs> what on earth is going on here? Well, a donkey is a domesticated animal, a beast of burden that the Israelites need. So God makes this provision that he will not require the firstborn of donkeys, yet because it's a firstborn, you take another sheep and sacrifice it as a substitute for the donkey. Isn't that crazy? This is crazy stuff, isn't it? Um, so this firstborn is um, to be redeemed, even though it's an animal. And if you don't do that, you're going to lose it because it says break its neck. <laughs> so, okay, we might as well lose a sheep rather than a donkey because a donkey is more useful to us than a sheep. Why would you break its neck? Well, yeah, why do you break its neck? I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. So here's a couple more and, and, and then we'll close, okay? So what's interesting now is if you go over to Numbers chapter three, so again, this is all a part of the same section of, of the Old Testament. When you come to Numbers chapter three and you come down to verse 11, it says here, the Lord said to Moses, 
I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine. Now the focus changes from the firstborn belonging to God. The Levites belong to God, and they are kind of a substitute for the firstborn child. Crazy, isn't it? Go over to chapter 8, verses 15 in uh, Numbers. In chapter 8, verse 15, says here, after you have purified the Levites and presented them as a wave offering, they are to come do their work at the tent of meeting. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to me. I have taken them as my own in place of the firstborn, the first male offering from every Israelite woman. Every firstborn male in Israel, whether man or animal, is mine. There's that possession thing again. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set them apart for myself. And I have taken the Levites in the place of all the firstborn sons in Israel. So now this group of priests are considered to be the firstborns that belong to God. Now, I'm not sure we can fully figure out the rationale behind all this, except for these lasting ordinances and those that then step in the place of the firstborn is kind of hinting at and foreseeing a time when Jesus steps in to the place as the firstborn of God and he is sacrificed on our behalf so that God can claim us as his possession. So this is where maybe parts of the Old Testament is anticipating a greater fulfillment than what we see here in the text itself. Does that, does that make sense at all? So in all of this, uh, the consecration of the firstborn and I'm almost done, is this is, there's something more going on here than simply getting them out of Egypt. This has something to do with God's possession of them as his people. This has something to do with the establishment of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread as an annual celebration for uh, the people and, and, and God's provision and protection over them, like I read out of Isaiah just a second ago. So here's my concluding thoughts for us tonight. Passover is the focus of the section. The 10th plague is serving the Passover, not the other way around. So that's a break from the first nine plagues. The, those nine plagues are serving a purpose of somehow attacking the gods of Egypt. But this one is different. This 10th plague is talking about um, the Passover and the celebration as a ritual festival that is to be carried on. Now, why? 
could it have possibly been endangered during their exile years to lose the potential of celebrating the Passover each year? And could these writings in some way be serving the reestablishment of the Passover in their experience as a nation after they come back from exile? That might be a part of what's going on here. Okay, I told you it wasn't gonna be easy, right? Remember <laughs> I said that at the beginning? I'm trying to be honest with you on it, but it's fascinating. It's a fascinating section. It really is. And, you know, next week we actually then go on a journey as the text then talks about them actually departing from Egypt. This seems to be something that's mixing two traditions so that we focus on the Passover as a lasting ordinance that then claims the nation of Israel as God's possession and his promise is that he is going to protect her. And, uh, and, and that seems kind of be at, at the middle of what's going on in this difficult section. Any thoughts or questions that you have as we finish up tonight? I couldn't, one of the reasons that God chose the Levites to be a substitute for the firstborn is that so to be another another differentiation between Yahweh and all these other gods because mm -hmm. they were sacrificing children. Right, that's right. Yeah, uh, again, it's a step forward, isn't it? And so mm -hmm. in all these pagan uh, surrounding nations that are sacrificing firstborns to appease their pantheon of gods, that would have been a part of the Israelite mindset, but God is going to say, no, 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 I'm not going to require your firstborn. Well, think of Abraham. When he was going to uh, offer Isaac, God provides a ram caught in the thicket as the substitute for that. So this definitely is a step forward, isn't it? Uh, compared mm -hmm. to the surrounding nations, for sure. Other thoughts? Well, that's a long ways away from how we learn the Exodus story in Sunday school. You know, just kind of, just kind of the facts of their departure and that type of thing. There's a lot that's going on, and um, and it's quite fascinating how the different traditions try to keep all of these important truths alive. And that's probably why you have two traditions that are working at the same time in this section of Exodus to keep all these truths alive for the, the people in the years and generations to come. Anything else? All right. Well, we'll, all right. Close, we'll close off there, okay? All right, thanks, Larry. Yeah, hope you have a good rest night. of the week. Night. All right. Night. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Bye.